Well, uh, good morning. As you're uh, uh, settling back in from that fellowship break, I would love for you to open your Bibles, if you have one, with you to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and verse 42, to a very familiar passage. And uh, if you don't, eventually it'll be up on the screen. Uh, if you go back to that, that, slide, that, that title slide, since I have to have a title, I like to tell you why I have that title, and uh, so you'll know how good a title it is. It's certainly better than, what was the one that I had last week, like, do you even lift, bro, or something like that? Um, this one is, uh, uh, I really wanted to say becoming a good church man, a good, a good church man, uh, which uh, is an old way of, uh, I'm using more inclusive language by saying becoming a good church person. Now, churchman was was the language of the church age, you know, and the reason that this is so on my heart, uh, what does it mean for us to become good church people, is we do not live in the age of the church anymore. I mean, that's no mystery to, to you. There was a day, I'm old enough to remember the time in history of our, of our country when for you to be a meaningful member of a community, I don't mean a church community, I mean a community in which you lived, a neighborhood, that you were, part, as, as part of living in that community, you were necessarily embedded within some place of worship. Any of you with me old enough to remember where, you know, to be a good citizen, you know, of the town, you, you had to kind of sort of affiliate with a church, a denomination, a, you know, a, a, a synagogue, some place of worship. If you didn't, you were, you probably were suspicious. <laughs> you know, there was, a, that was just one of the things that we believed is, is that one of the ways you could tell somebody was trustworthy and good is, is that they had a connection. They were a good churchman or a good church person. And so, of course, there's a lot of assumption or a lot of negative that's associated with that. But as, we, as, we, as the church age is, in a sense, the, what I mean by that is the age of when it was kind of commonly accepted, this is what you did to be a good upstanding citizen, is given way to a predominantly unchurched country. You know, our nation is now, people estimate, over 80% unchurched, which means that people who, who, who don't attend church, you know, frequently or, or meaningfully connected or engaged in a fellowship. And you've heard me say this a number of times. I just listened to another message this week that was reminding me of this, that we have now dumbed it down to the point that we say engage, an engaged person in the life of the church is somebody who attends church 1.9 times per month. That, that that's what it means to be an engaged person in the body of Christ. And, and uh, when I say we, I mean the church. I mean, this is what, as, as people gather and talk about it, like if we can keep our people at, you know, 1.9 times per month or above, you know, we're doing good. And it, it, it I, I mean, to me, it's a, when I hear that language, I feel like, man, I'm really getting old. And also I feel like I know that we're never going to really compete favorably in that. Well, for two reasons. Number one, we don't compete with other churches. We're not, it's not Coke and Pepsi. Right, we're not we're not in that, you know. Somebody is in some other place and they're growing in any measure. Praise be to God. Uh, we don't. That's not ever going to be a problem for me or for us. We care about the kingdom. But this. But the other reason why we're not ever going to kind of appear favorably in that regard is, is that you know, here's the truth of the church: what you attract people with is what you keep them with. Amen. And it, and if 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 we're going if we were going to do what we need to do to get people here 1.9 times a month, and that's all we have to offer. Um, I'm not willing, I'd never be willing to go to that place of becoming a, a marketing, you know, machine or whatever it takes to, to just to kind of 
you know, shake the, the highways and hedgerows enough for people to come and check it out, but not really ever really commit. And so what I'm wanting to do this morning is open up, you know, as I've been contemplating this in my heart, the possibility of, of what it means really in our age to become a, a good church person. And, and so in that Acts chapter 2, very familiar passage, this is a time in the life of the church. It's the very first days in the life of the church. And I will just confess to you that this passage, which is very well known, that if any of us knew exactly what they were doing and it was, and it was just re- repeatable, like if it was a formula, everybody would do it exactly like it was done and we would have the exact same results. And, and because we don't get all that it means, we, what we can do is we can, we can begin to ask the Lord, you know, wh- you know what, is, what, was, what did this mean then and how do we apply it now? And we struggle, we approach it, we go astray of it. We, you know, the Lord calls us back. It's a continual you know, um, process. And we have to trust the process, that, you know, that the Lord will not, you know, break his covenant with us uh, because we are grafted into a covenant that he has made that he does not break. And so I'll have more to say about that in a bit. So uh, here in this passage, uh, and it's part of a longer passage, I just peeled out this one verse really because I care about one word. And the word I care about in there is devoted. I want you to focus your attention on that word. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So really, what this is saying is, is that they, they gave themselves to these things, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and to prayer. I hope you'll find all of those embedded within this, this message. But really, my emphasis is on the fact that they devoted themselves. And, and the, the, the principal devotion, you'll see at the very outset of this, is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's, it's in an order and, and this is the, so the picture I have in my mind is a group of people who are fledgling, who hardly know what to believe, that have now gathered themselves on a very regular basis, probably daily, and they're gathering themselves around the apostles' feet, much like disciples <laughs> gathered around Jesus' feet and learned from the rabbi. And so the, the very outset of this, you go, well, you know, what's going on here? Well, let me first tell you about this word, and then, because I've got to prove I'm smart and then we'll, we'll get into, you know, a, a, a deeper understanding of it. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would bless the, the, even the declaration of this word. Lord, let, let not your word return void. Do what you want to do with this, this word. Lord, we ask that you would breathe on this message. I need it. I need it. Lord, without, without you, it's, there's not much I have to say that matters. And so, Lord, we ask for eternal weight and eternal purpose to be embedded within this, this message. And the parts of this message that, aren't, that don't rise to that level, Lord, we pray that there'd be no memory of, the, of those parts. Use me now, Lord, as you always uh, do. It's get me out of the way. Let me decrease that you would increase. In Jesus' name, amen. So this word devoted is the Greek word proskartereo. And there we can close in prayer now because I said that. And prove to you that I know a Greek word. And this is a word that's one of those words that's stuck in my craw and it has uh, since I learned Greek. It's, you know, I have certain Hebrew and Greek words. I don't really remember tons of what I, I, I learned and knew really well, you know, in seminary in terms of using these languages. I have tools that help me to use them. But this is a word that I, that I do remember. And the reason I remember it is because I remember it being so much deeper. The words that are so much deeper than how we typically translate them in English always stick with me. And this is one of those words. In fact, uh, even the way it's, it's translated here, I'm not sure what, what version that is, um, but in most English versions or translations, it translates it just simply they devoted themselves. 
And what it leaves out it, it, that really matters is the idea of continuation. This, this seems to have the sense of a, a, a past action. Like there was a time where they came to the altar at the response to a message and they put themselves on the altar and they made a commitment. They devoted themselves. They said, Lord, I will now devote myself to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer on this day, and I'm going to write it in my Bible so that I won't forget I've made this, I've made this commitment. And that, that's the feeling you can get from this. But the true sense of this word is it means, it means to adhere to, to, be, to continually strive for. It has this sense in it um, to, to continue all the time in one place. It's, this is like, uh, don't think of the negative sense of running in place, but imagine being on a treadmill and not getting off and just saying, I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, turn the speed up, turn it down. I'm not going anywhere. It's to persevere and to not faint. It's to, be, it's to show yourself as being courageous in a continual place. It's to have constant readiness to be, to be waiting on constantly to be put in. You know, like, here I am, I'm ready to go. I've got my, my, myself ready. And it really has the idea of, if you can imagine, like, holding on to something, you know, and, and then have you ever, like, been hold, like, maybe, did you ever have to do something like pull-ups for the Presidential Physical Fitness Award or something like that? And you're, you're, or, or what I remember is, and I'm not saying this as a, I mean, maybe it's all changed now because I know everybody's equal in every single way and nobody can be ever different in any way or it's a problem. But, you know, it used to be when I was in school, girls did something called the flexed arm hang. Anybody remember the flexed arm hang where you just had to keep your chin above the bar? And, and so you did that for a time. Now, we did that as well. I had a PE teacher who said we're both doing, we're all, boys and girls are doing the same thing. And so you would, you both, did, but, you know, you were timed and you, if you could keep your chin above the bar for a certain amount of time, and I can remember watching people do this who would, in the middle of it, you can see the struggle begin to happen where the, first you'd see a twitching in the toes, you know, and then you'd see the whole leg start to shake, and then people would, they'd start readjusting their grip. You know, you know what that looks like where somebody's, you know, they're about to fall down and they kind of, they're just, and then, they're, and then I would watch people throw their chin on the bar. I would do this myself. You'd throw your chin on the bar as though you could lock yourself in place and hold yourself there just by your chin and gait maybe three more seconds because your chin is stuck up there. And this idea of struggling, even when, you're f- when your hands are growing tired and your arms are giving out and readjusting your grip and holding yourself just in the place for just another few seconds is exactly the, the idea of the Greek word proskartereo, the verb to, to devote yourself, to continue all the time. And it's, it has a very, very deep and significant meaning as compared to the idea of I just went to the altar and made a commitment one day and wrote it in my Bible. And so this is, this is the idea of what they're saying. Now, it says here, you know, again, in a, in a primary place, that they promoted themselves to these, these, these concepts, but particularly, you know, to the apostles' teaching, which is, well, I'll tell you what they didn't devote themselves to before I get into it. They, they, and it's a, it's a pretty key thing. If you were to read the verses that follow this, you would see it says in here that everyone was filled with awe, and many wondrous wonders and, and miraculous signs were done. You know, that's what's happening here in the very beginning of the church, signs and wonders. But guess what? They didn't devote themselves to those signs and wonders. They loved them, and they, and they were encouraged by them, and, they, met, and they, were, they were a sign. The signs were signs. They were visible, outward, tangible reminders that Jesus was still on the scene being Jesus, 
But their devotion was, was not to the signs and wonders. Their devotion was actually to the teaching. They didn't devote themselves to what we would call today the American dream, which is, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They, they gave up rights, and I'll get into that more uh, in a bit. I think what you can say when it says particularly devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, what did Jesus teach the apostles? What was his final admonition to them as far as teaching? He says, go out into the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And so you can imagine in the early days of the church sitting around the feet, what are they teaching? Well, Jesus, you've heard it said this, but Jesus said that. So do this, and do, do what Jesus said instead of that. And they're like, wow, that's mind-blowing. I've never thought of that before. Like, you know, give up my coat, carry the bag an extra mile, all these sorts of things. I mean, Sermon on the Mount, this is mind-blowing stuff, but they're devoting, they're continually grappling and struggling and holding themselves in the place of going, even though this really pushes me, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, then I'm going to devote myself to this. And the whole culture in which all of this stuff was happening that you see here in Acts chapter 2, the whole place in which all this happened was something we call the church. Not a building, you know, but, but the whole culture in which this place of proskartereo, this, this striving and struggling to devote ourselves to what Jesus taught us, and we're, we're going to do our best to obey that, that, the idea of growing in that place and, dis, and being discipled under that, that whole culture is called the church. And what I want to do is unpack, what does it look like for us to be good church people, <laughs> people who are devoted to this and in, in, in something that approximates what we see in Acts chapter 2. And so, you know, let me kind of kick that off by saying I think that the Lord deeply intends for the, for the church to be a place of uh, positive, loving, and accepting relationships. I mean, I just want to say this completely clearly. Uh, I had, you know, some email recently, then kind of an exchange, and I want to make clear how I feel about this, that the church is a place of the distribution, the, the putting out of unconditional love. Nothing, no buts after that. We love people without conditions. We love people no matter who they are, no matter what they do, no matter where they come from, no matter what their lives look like, we love them. Why? Because that's how Jesus loved you and me. Right? He loved me in the midst of my, I mean, if he, if, but we also, but the, there's no but on the relationship. However, and, let's say, and, we believe in the transforming power of Jesus that, that anybody, no matter how, even me, he was even able to deal with my deep sinfulness and selfishness and, and contend with that in a way where he won. It was a long wrestling match, but his grace won out, and I surrendered my life, and he was able to actually do something in my, and transform me from what I was to who I'm becoming. And, and we believe that a church is a place where there are loving, absolutely unconditional, positive, loving, accepting relationships, and we believe it's a place where righteousness reigns, and the people of God come together to be known by God and to know each other. And in a word... You know, we, we need a place that we call home. And, and, and that's the essence of fellowship and the fellowship break that we have and what I pray for in that. And the problem, the struggle in this is, and, and when I say you, I mean we or all of us, is that 
we all too often are looking for the perfect church, right? With perfect people who are leading, leading perfect lives. And the problem is, is that we know that's not a reality. And if you ever did find one, I always say to people, if you find a place like that, don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> it, it. So it's a choice decision for us to say yes and commit, our, and commit ourselves to a beautifully imperfect place, a place that Jesus loves and is coming back for. And all families have squabbles from time to time, and church is no different than a, than a family. And sometimes our Thanksgiving dinner, I call, I call Sunday morning a Thanksgiving dinner. I, that's how I pray for it every week. Sometimes our Thanksgiving dinner is a bit awkward, you know, because the weird uncle shows up, and we're not sure if the neighbors are going to see him. Or sometimes it's a bit awkward because we're, we have a little bit of a, a, some strife going on in the midst of it. And we're not quite sure if we want to sit next to the person that we're sitting next to. But the laws of love, the royal law of love says to us, we cast all that behind us and we plow into deep loving relationships and we do sit next to that person at the Thanksgiving dinner table, even in spite of the differences, because that's what Jesus would have us do. And that's something like what it, you know, what it looks like. We have our squabbles. At the end of the day, though, with all the imperfections, it's still, I think, in my mind, I still believe it's the best place to be. I read a story this week of a, a, a pastor uh, who is a leader that I deeply respect who told a story about being in New York City and getting in a cab driver with a, a man who was, uh, he was from the Middle East and of Arabic descent, and he, this man, as he began to talk about who he was and what he did, this cab driver went on with story after story after story about why he hated Christians in the church. And, you know, there's a variety, you know, just a variety of things, almost comedic things that happened in a a 20-minute cab ride that were things that were hard for this pastor leader to to defend necessarily. He was like, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point. I just had a conversation like this in the in the breezeway before service about, you know, there are things that will chip away at people's faith. And this guy was saying, this bothers me, that bothers me, this bothers me, that bothers me. And finally, when he got out and he, he paid the, the fare and he gave him a really big tip and the guy looked at him suspiciously, he said in an effort to witness to him, he said, let me ask you a question, sir. He said, if there is a God and if that God had a church, what would it look like? What would it be like? And the cab driver thought about it for a minute. He said, well, if there was a God and he had a church, they would care for the poor, they would heal the sick, and they wouldn't char- charge you any money to teach you the book. And this guy said that as soon as the cab driver got in and pulled away, he began to weep because he recognized that this man who had all of this axe to grind and all of this bitterness knew deep in his heart what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. And, he, and this, this, this leader goes on to say, the world knows what it's supposed to be like. And we of the church, as the church, we don't get it most of the time. And so we have to understand what it means for us to be engaged, you know, good church people. When you joined the kingdom, when you, when you decided to move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you expected for God to kind of use you and to put you in the game and to, and to, and to make you part of this, this team. So what's happened? And I'm not saying, as, and again, I'm just kind of diving in here. I'm not saying... Just so we're clear with one another, I'm not saying that you have to quit your job and live at the church uh, to be a good church person. I believe oftentimes churches create problems by establishing Christian ghettos where everything that matters that's, you know, that's supposedly Christian happens at the church. 
and we isolate ourselves from the world. I don't, I don't think that's the, the solution. And I'm not saying you have to sell everything and move to fill in the blankistan. Um, you know, I'm not saying that. Although God may be calling you to do that. In fact, one of my favorite pioneering missionaries, Hudson Taylor, said it'd be better for you to ascertain not whether you're called to go, but whether you're called to stay. You know, but so I'm not saying that's what you have to do. And I'm not saying you have to die as a martyr. Although it's possible there are more Christians that have, that have died for the name of Jesus in the last hundred years than any time in, in before that. So I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is this. I'm just saying participate. Devote yourself. Don't wait for somebody to, vote you, to devote you. I don't, can you devote another? I am saying give. Give what you have. Give of your talents that the Lord's given you. Give a portion of what you have, time, energy, money, on a regular basis to this purpose, to the purposes of the kingdom that God has, has given us to fulfill, to redeeming people, to caring for people, to loving people. Sh- you know, share your heart and life with people. Share your heart and life with people that aren't even easy to sit in the same car with. That's, that's part of what it means to, 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 to vote. And I want to kind of break down in, in just a few ways what exactly I think it means for us to become good church people through this idea of proskartereo, of devoting our, continually devoting ourselves. So here we go. I'm going to give these to you quickly. You ready to listen quickly? First, love one another. I think we just underestimate the power and the importance of just simply loving each other. Uh, You know, I can almost just say stop and soak in that place But I want to kind of give you the two sides of what I think that means. I mean, the idea that's embedded within the New Testament, probably more than any other thing, is that consistent love for one another, and especially consistent love for other Christians, is key to a healthy spiritual life. Because fellowship is the Lord's prescribed environment for growth. When we get around people who are are in in the game with us, it's the most significant arena by which God uses, you know, to grow us up. If you're struggling... If you're really struggling in either some aspect of your life or, in, you know, like your, your tangible life, like your outward physical life or your health, or you're struggling in your, in your spiritual life, as a pastor, my experience is more often than not, and by that I mean like 90% of the time, you've probably isolated yourself in some way, in some aspect of your life. And so this isn't just a theory or a commitment to the theory of the church but actually connecting yourself with other fallible and perfect people. And so, yes, first it means loving other Christians. And, and um, man, I, I can tell you in the last year, uh, I've seen in the, in the, you know, we all say in seasons of life that there's ups and downs in the political arena and the cultural arena. Um, you know, things can be awkward or difficult because you didn't vote for this guy and I didn't vote for that guy. But I've seen more in the last year or so of Christians eating other Christians. Uh, whether it's through social media or through church life, that it's, it's, to me, it's like this is a place we need to return to in teaching so that we can regrasp. Many of us treat church life like we're immature adolescents instead of like, you know, we're maturing growth. We, what we want is we want thrills and constant exhilaration, and we want to have our needs met by the people who are around us who help us. And when our Christian brothers and sisters fall short of those expectations or when, they, um, when they're boring, or imperfect, or they fail to, <clears throat> to meet the needs that we have, then we, you know, we can, and when I say we, I probably mean you. No, I mean, uh, I mean all of us. We pout, we turn away, we isolate ourselves from them, and then we fall into the exact trap of being in a place where we're not growing because we're isolated. I am who I am, which, by the way, 
would be I'm a maturing but very imperfect follower of Jesus. That's who I am. And I am who I am because a group of very mature but very imperfect believers stuck with me in my spiritual infancy, and I stuck with them. I, I literally devoted myself. I struggled to hang in there. And it wasn't always easy, and I, 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 one step forward, two steps back. There were many times, well, I don't know how many, there were, there were times where Carol went to spiritually mature people in the life of our church and said, go after my husband. And if they didn't, I wouldn't walk with the Lord. I have very fond memories of those early days. And so plowing deeply into relationships with other believers, even the people we don't like, is an absolute imperative to your growth. If you are, not, if you are presently harboring bitterness towards other believers, you, are stunted, you will not grow beyond there. You will not grow beyond there. If, you're, if you feel like your heart's growing dull and you're, you know, I just struggle with these, you know, the, these people in the church that believe this or do this or whatever, the, the, the struggle in your heart and the growing dull is because of the, the root of bitterness. That root of bitterness will eat you alive. Secondly, the second form of loving one another is, is just hospitality. You know, hospitality is a radical form of loving one another. It, it, it literally demonstrates the heart of Jesus. You know, the Bible says that when we entertain strangers, when we give hospitality, it's like, you know, we, we're entertaining angels unaware. That, that when we move outside of our, our, our immediate group of Christian friends and offer hospitality, it's a pure, pure form of love. And Jesus tells a group of Pharisees in Luke chapter 14 to invite people to share in the, in the hospitality that can't pay it back. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, you'll be blessed by that, although they can't repay you. You'll get repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's the kind of hospitality that isn't worried about making a favorable impression. If I invite so-and-so to my house and I do a good job, they'll think I'm really cool and that'll up my status. This is inviting people to your house who will never be able to help you in any way and believing the fact that the Lord looks upon that as radical love for one another. We live in an age, though, where, um, you know, the, the pursuit of self-indulgence and self-gratification is, is much more you know, the, the default. And so genuine, warm hospitality stands out. When you do it, when you get outside of yourself, it stands out as an incredibly clear sign to the world of unselfish giving. It's a way in which we act as in, contra- in contradiction to the world, the flesh, and the devil. All right, that's enough there. The second way of, 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 uh, of really devoting ourselves, and this is one that it's a, it's a little harder to see in this, but I think, it, so if I'm going off the script, we can talk about it. But I think it's such a significant thing and it's so significant in many ways to where we are today that I'm excited to, to tell you about this point more than any other point probably in my message. And that's this, that it's an absolute characteristic of Jesus to remember people the world has forgotten. Let me just say that again so you can grasp. It's an absolute characteristic of Jesus to remember people the world has forgotten. So remembering forgotten people it seems to be a, a specialty of the Lord. I mean, think about this. And, and just think about the world around us and who might fall into these categories. Jesus loved untouchable lepers. <laughs> he went after untouchable lepers, lepers. He went outside of the camp, outside of the community, to those who were cast out and, and touched them and healed them and returned them to community. They were forgotten. They were literally forgotten. Jesus went to spiritual outcasts like the demoniac and the garrisons who was who was put out in a cave and said, you know, you're outside the camp and forgotten. And he went to him and said, you know, you're healed and brought him back into community. He went to social rejects like Matthew, a tax collector, and said, you know, you are complete, 
completely rejected from Jewish life. You are worse than a, tax, or, or, than a leper or a demoniac. And, and he brought him into community and had dinner with him. Not only did he have dinner with him, what did he do at Matthew's house as a radical form of hospitality? He said to Matthew, invite all your friends, guys that are just like you. He went after orphans and widows and restored them to the community. He went after you know, and abuse victims, people who were, who, were, who were left outside for whatever reason. Even in the agony of the cross, you can look at this in Luke chapter 23. Even on the cross. This is one of the most, I, I love this passage of scripture because how deeply it shows you the heart of Jesus in terms of remembering people who were forgotten. One of the two guys on the cross says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is the, what's the opposite of remember? So what he's saying is, he's saying, Lord, do not forget me. Remember me. There's, there's no one in this world that's going to remain. In days, I'll be gone. But remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, let me expand that beyond, because I want to make a couple of different applications to this. That are all, that This next one is ironic. It's very ironic because it applies to us today in a way that didn't apply to the, the Acts chapter 2 community. When we, when we have to remember those who, are, who don't have what they, what they, all they need or who are forgotten by the world, this Bible, this New Testament Bible, the New Testament, Bible, the New Testament was written by who? Predominantly Jewish men. Pointing to a Messiah who is a Jewish man. And yet we live, particularly in the West, in an age where we have almost completely forgotten our Jewish brothers and sisters. Not just in terms of what it means for us to be linked in uh, to, our, to our rootedness in the faith, but also in terms of what it means for us to stand with these people and stand with their nation. It's one of the reasons that I think it's so significant that for us as a church that we will be Israel-centric that we, will, we believe the fact that the Lord is invested in his covenant to the Jewish people, that he is coming back to a literal place called Jerusalem to rule and reign from the world, and he will gather all the nations in that place for judgment. In fact, when you think about what it means for us to, to, to not forget people that are forgotten, Jesus does this in Matthew 25 when he says, look, um, and I'll, I'll, without giving you the context, first I'll tell you this, the, the, simple, the story you know, sheep and goats, and he says, you know, hey, when you go and uh, feed the hungry and visit the sick and imprisoned and, and take care of them, uh, you know, you're doing that to me. And, he, and they said, when, you know, or they're saying, when did, we, when did we see you? When did we do, when did we minister to you, Jesus? He said, when you did this to them, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, the context of this Matthew 24, 25 is the end of the age. Okay? Now, I don't want to lose anybody here, so let me give you the context. The context is the end of the age. And I've struggled back and forth with this passage, but I'll tell you, I believe the deepest embedded meaning within this is this. The end of the age, God's going to gather, it says in Matthew 25, the nations. All the nations will be gathered. And, and actually in the Greek, it says, it doesn't say nations and then people like it does in the English. It says all the nations will be gathered and they, the nations, will we'll stand before the Lord, and they will be separated into sheep and goat nations. And he says, how, will, how are we going to separate? He says, I'm going to separate you on the basis of, of how you treated these, my brethren. I believe brethren, there is his Jewish brothers. That's who he came for. 
And he's saying the way you treat these people is going to be a significant, the most significant aspect of your judgment as nations. So remembering this is a significant part of what it means for us to remember forgotten people. And one of the reasons that I want to build that case, I'm building it in a certain direction, is because I, in a way, have a commercial advertisement within this message that I think is incredibly prophetic and significant for the age we're in, which is that I think that probably the world's most forgotten people group today are the Kurds, the Kurdish people. 30 or 40 million people who live, the largest people group in the world without a nation, who are divided into four very hostile quadrants of the world, Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey, and are being slaughtered right now. And I'm not, you know, whether you agree or disagree with the political movements of of, of, of the president, you know, whether you, th- you know, there's lots of articles that are out there about different things that are going on. I will tell you that I don't agree with our pulling back and allowing the Turks, the Turkish military to go in and to slaughter uh, Syrian Christians and Kurds. I don't, I don't agree with that. I, I think it's horrible. I think the stuff that's, ha- if you look at the news, what's happening, it's horrible and it's only going to get worse. I think we have to stand with these people and pray. I think, we, I think it's just a calling. I think, and, and uh, one of the guy, ministries I work with, we've been teaching a lot about why it matters, and I want to say this. The reason I connected this to the Jewish people is, is I think there's a propensity for us to forget these covenant sort of relationships that the Lord you know, has made. And I can tell you that I talked to a, a, a Jewish-Israeli believer the other day who was telling me, my concern about the way you know, nations might be treating the Kurds is, is that nations might treat Israel this way. You know, and so um, all this to say this, that whether you agree or you disagree with what's happening, you know, people who, innocent people, women and children are dying. Human beings are dying, uh, you know, and and it's genocidal. And so without using a direct parallel, because it would be horrible to make everything, you can't ever make equivalencies out of things. But you remember when we, you know, not many of us are old enough to have literally lived through World War II, but you know, when we watch movies that, like Schindler's List, and you see Schindler's List, a big part of the movie is seeing the gathering up of Jewish people and then being, being led into slaughter. And you watch that with this deep pain and this deep groan, and you see Schindler at the end of this going, if I could sell one, if I could do, he's, he's, he's just broken saying, if I could do anything else to save one more Jew, I, you know, why, why couldn't I do that? And you watch that and you think to yourself, I could never stand by and watch something like this happen. Here's the Kurds. Here's the Kurds. And so we, we live in an hour where I think, that, you know, by the sovereignty of God, we have the opportunity to remember people who have been forgotten and to remember them in prayer and to support them. And so uh, I'm leaving today for Kurdistan. Uh, I'll be flying out this afternoon. And uh, in a couple weeks, two Sundays from now, Brian is going to be leading worship in an event in Washington, D.C. that is a, a night of prayer. Uh, for the Kurdish people. And so uh, pray for us and join us in prayer for these people. Read everything you can read if you have questions because there's a lot of conflicting stuff. If you have questions, let's talk about it. Let's dialogue about it. But I'm telling you, as Karen just said, these are human beings <laughs> and, and um, they're worthy of Jesus' death. They're worthy of living. All right. Father, we pray in Jesus' name for this people, this Kurdish people even now, that you would, prov- you would provide a hedge of protection, that you would move within governments, uh, that you would remove wicked 
leaders and wicked decisions, Lord, and you, and you would cause those who, who, who stand in the place to make righteous decisions. We pray for wisdom and discernment that those decisions would be made. We pray for open access for people who can help. We pray for open access for those who need to flee. We pray for life, Lord. We pray life. We speak life over this region of the world in Jesus' name. If you don't know anything about what I'm saying, learn about it or trust me. <laughs> That's what I'd ask you right now. All right, so can I move on? 11.30, I'm going to be done soon. Um, next. What it means to become a good church person is that the category I have for this is that embedded within that Acts chapter 2 reality of devoting themselves is there, the idea of proskartereo, the, the, of, of continually doing this, is that you are continually waking up every day and laying yourself, as Romans 12 says, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. That This idea of commitment is this call to commitment is an ongoing call. It's not as though God's got to convince us every day. It's not as though we forget. It's not like the notebook or what's the movie with uh, 50 first dates. It's not like that where we wake up every morning and have to be reminded you know, of, of this love relationship. It, it, that's not the meaning of, of, of a continual call to commitment. It's our waking up and recognizing that we have something significant to live for beyond happiness. And, and this, is, this might be the provoking part of the message. Your happiness and my happiness, or even the American right of the pursuit of happiness, is a, is, it's, it's a deeply embedded entitlement within the, the life of Amer- of, for Americans, right? We have the right to the pursuit of happiness. But that's not the high calling or the highest calling of Christians in this world. Our human flourishing and happiness is not the highest calling that we're called to. If we are never happy in this world, that would be, it would be sad, but we know that we weren't made for this world, that we're not citizens of this world, and that in the age to come, we don't just have happiness, we have perpetual happiness and joy and flourishing. And so, too many of us today focus on what I would call, people say cultural Christianity, I like to say cosmetic Christianity, a cosmetic view of Christianity, in which, in which we view our devotion to church as a devotion to a self-improvement program. You know, like um, uh, P90X or Weight Watchers or something like that where, like, if I dive into the church and I do these things, then I'm going to be, you know, to the extent that I can kind of get on the, get with the program, it's going to make me better and then I'm going to like me better. And so we have this sort of mentality of, like, come to Jesus and get your marriage fixed. Or come to Jesus and become prosperous. Or come to Jesus and get this or that blessing. Or whatever thing it is that you're looking for. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers and those desires. In fact, they're very good and noble prayers. They're just not the promises of Scripture. At at, at Maranatha Church, we have the commitment, the the, the deep commitment um, to continue to encourage you and to lead you as best as we can to come to Jesus because he's worthy to be worshipped. Whether or not he fixes our marriages or heals our bodies or gives us new cars, we're going to keep coming to him because he's worthy. We want those things and we, we believe for those things, but they're not the thing that keeps us coming. We're not in it for the prize of you know, the, 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 what this world has to offer. We, we might go through life with a, with a spouse who for one reason or another is never going to come to Christ or relate to us in the proper way. Or we may never have a marriage partner at all. 
the church really massively fails in this regard by making marriage the ultimate pinnacle of, of human flourishing. In fact, the New Testament has a lot to say about, you know, it'd be better for you to remain single, but most of you won't be able to do that. So surrender to your flesh and get married so you won't be in a bad place. But if you're able to remain single, so when we say, hey, you know, someday you're going to grow up and find a spouse and get married, and that's the only way you can flourish, we do a disservice to those people who aren't. Jesus is still worthy of our loyalty, and, and the commitment call uh, within the church is, is also to the community. The commitment call to, that Jesus puts on your life as a believer isn't just a call to him. It's a call to the community of, of, of Christ or the church, and this means, as I've already mentioned, this means we have to learn to love people we wouldn't necessarily even like. Let me say that one again because I don't want you to miss that one. We have to learn within the body of Christ as a call to commitment to commit ourselves as we get up in the morning and go, okay, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put on the full armor and I'm going to go out today. I'm going to represent you to the world, including my brothers and sisters in Christ. What's that going to look like? And he's going to say, I want you to love Jeff. And you say, I don't even like Jeff. How am I going to love him? He says, bypass liking him and love him. Love him. Well, how can I love him if I don't like him? Well, how can I love you? Um, you know, we, we, can, we have to learn to love people we wouldn't necessarily even like. It also means learning to relate in a community with people uh, in a variety of different settings. It doesn't mean we just come together on Sunday morning and we fellowship together for a few minutes and sing some songs and we hear a guy go on and on and on and on about something out of the Bible and then go, we've got it, we're good. You know, we've, we've, we've fulfilled the call to commitment. It means actually getting outside of this and doing what B Dietrich Bonhoeffer called life together. That we actually would, would, would commit to go deep in life together. Um, we had a wonderful dinner last night with, with, our, with, with our dear friend Stephen Marianne and their sukkah and a pre-sukkot meal where we just hung out in a, in a booth that they built in their backyard and just had wonderful dinner and wonderful fellowship. And it... And it just, it's, it's, it's something more than just running into each other in the normal course of church because they were intentional about inviting and we had to make a decision to go. And by going, we were made richer. This is, the, I mean, making a priority of investing our time with people who are going to help us draw into a deeper relationship with Jesus, whether it's in small groups or house churches or serving alongside one another, whatever it may be, is a deep, deep part of what it means for us to fulfill our commitment uh, to the church. Make space. John Wimber, who's one of my heroes in the faith, I love this. I, I, I just took these down almost exactly as they are. He talks about four characteristics of health within the church. He says a revived and healthy church will have four characteristics, house, hospital, school, and army. He says as a house, we fellowship together as a family. We value relationships and accountability with one another. As a hospital, we yearn to provide healing and restoration for those who've been wounded. Specifically, we must become skilled in our helping ministries and lift our level of understanding, training, and methodology and pray for more anointing and power as it relates to scriptures and the Holy Spirit's work amongst us. As a school, we're committed to equipping the body of Christ and empowering every member for ministry. And as an army, we're committed to benevolence, evangelism, and taking the kingdom of God into the community around us. John Wesley said, making an open stand against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness which overspread our land as a flood is one of the noblest ways of confessing Christ in the face of his enemies. All right, finally. Final way of, 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 of becoming a good church person is recognizing that... Uh, 
that we as the church have the responsibility to release everyone to minister. We have to, we have to release all, each and every one of you. If you are called a Christian, if you follow Jesus, and, and even as an infant, then we have to release you. We have to lay our hands upon you, as 1 Timothy 1 says, and put our hands upon you and bless you and send you out to do ministry. Or as 1 Peter says, uh, 1 Peter 2.9 in talking about the purpose of every Christian to be a minister, he says, but you are a chosen people. He'll put it up there in a second if you don't have it. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, here's why this is so important as part of you becoming a good church person. You have to recognize the fact that all Christians, not just looking back to the Old Testament, Aaron and his descendants, literally, or not just the Cohens. Um, and not just the seminary graduates or, or those who are ordained, but all y'all, all of us, are royal priests who reflect the glory of God and that of our great high priest Jesus. So what does that mean for you? It means a few things. First of all, it means, this passage means, that every believer has direct access to God. That you don't need me to devote you. That you can devote yourself you know, to, to, to him. You can make your commitments to him and then we can live those out together. You can speak to God and you can hear from God. However, um, do, you, do you see up there where it says that every one of you is a priest? You see that? Do you see it? Just give me some indication you're with me. You see it? Okay, I tricked you. It's not up there. There's nothing up there that says you're a priest. It doesn't say priest. Never says you're a priest. Never says there you're a priest. It never says you're invited to be a priest. It says you're called to a priesthood. You can't be in a priesthood on your own. And overemphasizing your individual responsibility to be a priest to the detriment of what you are called to will destroy your commitment to being a good church person. You're called to a priesthood. To be a priest without a priesthood is like playing a baseball game without a team. Or a foot, in any team sport that you try to play without a team, you can't play it. You can't do it. You will fail at doing it. To be a priest without a priesthood is a fail, an endeavor in failure. Somebody, I copied this off of somebody's uh, social media. This, I'm using this quote as an example to tell you that I believe that social media can be used for redeeming purposes. Occasionally. And I think this is somebody who goes to our church who was watching her daughter run a cross-country race with another girl, and they ran side by side the whole race. And she, the quote was, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. The, the, the emphasizing your personal relationship with God that is pushed to the extreme can lead to some excessive individualism. You're not a priest by yourself. You need the rest of the body of Christ to fulfill this passage. It doesn't say you're a priest. It says you're a priesthood. You can individually enter into Christ's priesthood, but you function as part of a team. All right, second, all believers are priests to each other. We, we, we're a community of priests. We're a priesthood. Therefore, we serve one another again and again and again and again and again and again in the New Testament. We fight in the admonition to one another. All kinds of one another's. I, people have counted them. I've seen different numbers of it. I know it's in, at least in the 30s of, of the number of admonitions to one another. And this is why the pathway to Christian maturity is marked by becoming more concerned for others than yourself. You want to grow in Jesus? You want to really, truly go deep in Jesus? Begin to lay down your individual rights and begin to 
become more concerned with the people around you than you are with yourself. This is a powerful way in which we are a priesthood. Third, we're not just priests to one another. We're priests to the world. And by the world, I mean just outside those doors and everywhere else. We are a distribution center. We're not a place to, we're not a hospice. We're not gathered here to just be comfortable until we, until we die and go and meet, the, meet Jesus. We're here to get filled up and sent out. And the job of a priest, the job of any priest is, a, is to represent God to the people and the people to God. A priest is an intermediary. We're bridge builders, and too often the people that are called by God and supposed to be bridge builders between the community of the unsaved and God have instead become barriers. And so we cannot be barriers to those who are far from God. That doesn't mean that we water down our theology. It doesn't mean that we, we give in to the culture. But it does mean we have to get very clear at the center of what we believe. What is it that we believe and why? So that when we get out to the edges of, 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 of the society and the culture and a world that's increasingly just giving up on church, then we get out to the fringes that we can be bridge builders and not barriers. What's happened instead is that we're very soft at the center. We don't know what we believe so that when we get out of the fringes and we interact with people who are on the fringes who are, have really hostile views, they're like the, t- the cab driver, because we don't know what we believe, we become very hard because we're afraid that somehow somebody's going to slip past us and get into the kingdom. And we don't want them in without them knowing all the right things. And so if you want to be soft at the fringes, then you've got to get clear at the center. You've got to devote yourself to the word of God. We're not just a church. It says in this passage we're a holy nation. And we're called together to overcome the, 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 the kingdom of, of the enemy of the Lord. And as people who belong to God, we don't have personal rights our lives belong to this, this holy God, and we, we've been called by God. Every one of us, every one of you that would call yourself a believer is called by God to minister, and we have to, as a church, distribute that responsibility to every one of you. Lay our hands upon every one of you and say, you are called by God. You don't have a degree in Bible. You don't have an ordination certificate. It doesn't matter. You're called by God to minister every one of you. Amen. Your, your, your pastors aren't supposed to be like doctors or lawyers. You go to doctors and lawyers, and they're in a helping you know, profession. When you go to a doctor, you go to see, I go to see Dr. Downey, and I say, what's going on with me? I expect him to, to solve my problem and help me, right? And, and pastors are not like doctors. You know, we're not called to just solve your problems. We're called to be player coaches. We're called to coach and do our best to help grow you up, but we're right there alongside you. And you're, but that means you're right there alongside us, and this is the calling it is on all of us who follow Jesus. Now, just to, to, to wrap up, it's 1144. I'll be done in two minutes. So come on up, Brian. Amazing things were happening in those very first few days of Christianity. This is why I can perpetually go back to that, that Acts chapter 2 passage because... This is just the, the infancy of the church. Peter preaches one message, and they go from maybe 120 people to, you know, 3,120 or something like that in the course of a day. And uh, there's a lot of work to do, and there's a, a massive mess, I'm sure. And amazing things are happening in those first few days. And, you know, again, thousands converted. Miracles are happening left and right. And the followers of Jesus, in, in, in direct conflict with the world around them, the authorities, are actually proclaiming publicly the resurrection of Jesus. And in the midst of that, all that glory, they're also dealing with things like 
sobering lessons like Ananias and Sapphira, you know, what happened with them? You know, they, they kind of lied about their gift and, they, and the church sees them get killed. And they're like, that ah, isn't so fun. They're dealing with persecution and seeing people like Stephen get martyred because he dared to stand up and act just like Jesus. They're, they're dealing with rejection uh, because they're, even as they try to live out their, their, their continuing life as Jews who now follow the Jewish Messiah, it's, it's, it's difficult to live in concert with their Jewish brothers and sisters who believe they have no authority or right to interpret the Old Testament you know, through the lens of Jesus. So they're dealing with rejection. And how did, they, how did those followers of Jesus cope with all of that? They devoted themselves to this gathering, this culture that, for lack of a better word, we call the church. There's a story of, you know, the kind of the joke of Jesus returning to heaven after his ascension, saying, and the Father saying, well, how did it go? And he said, well, I, you know, I got 12. Well, I checked that 11, you know, followers who are, who are, who I've, who I've, described as as officers and they're going to take the message and spread it out around the world. He said, are they the best and the brightest? No, they're ragtag, humble fishermen, rejects. And the joke is, is the father says, well, what's your backup plan? And uh, that's where the joke ceases because Jesus would say there is no backup plan. That's the plan. And we're here today uh, because of not just the, the perfection of that plan, but but the devotion of those who gathered in those early days in the midst of great glory and great trials and said, I won't let go of this. It involved deepening a prayer life and fellowship with one another and preferring to spend time with each other than, you know, the, the, the latest series of whatever you call it on, on Netflix. It meant becoming more inter- interdependent to one, on one another. That I could find certain things that I don't have in my life with you and you could find those in me that we could actually share our lives with each other and it meant that they're devoted to reaching out as bridge builders to people who are far from God and making sure they would know that they're unconditionally loved and that Jesus offers a path to transformation they were devoted to being a community that would be a witness to the world as much as they were devoted to their own personal growth or happiness. And so, in the name of Jesus, let's be like those people. Let's be devoted. If you can stand, stand with me. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would burn this word uh, deeper in our hearts that we might know more and more what it means to continually...